We're in a series called Jesus Is. All the way through the book of John, John is quoting Jesus saying, I am this, I am that, I am the door, I'm the way, I'm the uh, truth, I'm the life. And we've been looking in the Bible at the book of John, asking the most important question, who is Jesus? Uh, really, I mean, it's uh, the identity of Jesus is the most the single most significant question you could possibly be asking um, in the history of the world because, and for eternity. Because if Jesus is who he claims he is, then truly we need to be on our knees before him and bow and celebrate him and put him in charge of our lives and of our families and of our church and just to follow him each step of the way. And so by the time you get to chapter 8, which is where we are today, Jesus is up to his neck in alligators. Well, actually, he was. He went to a festival in the city of Jerusalem, and it's a, there's a gathering at the festival. There was uh, about seven festivals a year, and the, the festival of uh, tabernacles, this one is called, uh, is one of the three that Jewish people were all required to gather in Jerusalem. And so uh, the city would swell by over ten times its size, and <clears throat> lots and lots of people there, and uh, many of them would gather in the temple courtyard, or uh, called the Temple Mount. And uh, they would uh, be listening to various people talk. And Jesus was doing some uh, teaching there. And, uh, of course, the scholars and the Pharisees were trying to discredit him and to get in an argument with him. And so chapter 7, I mean, chapter 7 and chapter 8 both record quite a bit of, of heated discussion between Jesus and uh, the Pharisees and some of the other uh, leaders, Jewish leaders at the time. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles <coughs> celebrates when the Jews, Jewish people lived out in the wilderness. So a uh, tabernacle or tent really would be really a feast of tents. And it's God gave them this feast to help remember the time that they spent for those 40 years living in tents, living out in the wilderness uh, before he brought them into the promised land. And so it helps them to remember God provided for you. God is good. God takes care of you. God has a plan. He's faithful. He's present in tough times. He cares about you. He's got a plan for your life, for your family, for you, uh, for you as a people. And uh, just be in step with him and sell, uh, follow him. So you and I, you know, we're not as familiar with with all the Jewish feasts, but in our own annual calendar, we have Christmas celebrations, we have Easter celebrations, and those are they're similar, but they have different purposes. So they're similar in that you, you get together, you have family, you have friends, you have good music, you have good food. They're different in that what they're celebrating, and of course, Christmas there's often presents, and Easter you get you know candy. Um, you know, if, if you're thinking on, on that level, but really there's a spiritual significance um, to each of them. So the spiritual significance uh, during the time of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, a couple of things would stand out that would be unique to that celebration. One is when people got to the city of Jerusalem, nobody lived inside. You, you, you got uh, sticks and uh, branches and you made yourself a little lean to shelter for you and your family and you lived outside for seven days. And that was to help remind you of the hardships that uh, your ancestors had undergone while they were living in the tents out in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering around. And the second was on the opening night of the celebration, a giant menorah, one or two of them, uh, would be erected in what's called the Court of the Women, the general courtyard where everybody was. uh, And this menorah or candelabra uh, with seven candles on it would be about 75 feet tall. And at the top 
top of each of those, of course, was a, a, a bucket that would hold up to 10 gallons of oil or a huge bowl. And then they, for a wick, they would uh, twist and use old clothing, unusable garments from the priests. And they would put those in and with some fanfare, they would light these um, uh, with uh, pomp and, and ceremony. And uh, an ancient report said that the light from those would, would light up the entire city of Jerusalem and you could see in all the streets. And so at the end of the feast, those lights were intentionally uh, extinguished. They were put out. And the reason was is because the Messiah had not yet arrived. And they're praying for the Messiah to come and he hadn't come yet. And so it's at this point, at this feast, that Jesus stands up there in the temple and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that is just an audacious claim. I mean, to be, say, I'm the light of the world. We're in a political year. And so you've, you know, you hear people make these phenomenal claims. I heard somebody claim that it was thanks to them that the economy was all working so well. And, uh, you know, I think it wasn't it Al Gore that claimed that he started the Internet. And, uh, you know, other people that have made huge claims about their own uh, accomplishments. But to have somebody stand up and to say, I am the light of the world... With this menorah behind him, 75-foot menorah that is lighting up the sky. Well, you see, let's look first at Jesus' credentials then. I mean, light is a symbol that's used throughout the Bible in connection with Christ. And so when you look, we can look from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the first verses in the Bible, uh, think about this in terms of Jesus being the light. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Now, I'd never thought of this as the first spot where the Trinity is actually mentioned, but you have God, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the water, and God says, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And Jesus came and said, I am the light. The psalmist picked this up and in numerous places in the Psalms, you can uh, find out about the light. But uh, Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? So the psalmist is saying, well, what's the light? The light is, um, the Lord is my light. Jesus comes along and says, I am the light. I am the Lord. It's an audacious claim to be making in the temple area in Jerusalem among people who were in the darkness and did not believe in him. Psalm 104, the psalmist said, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. The prophets picked up on this as well. Just quote one from Isaiah in chapter 9. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. You know, you get just before the life of Christ, and there was this couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah, who the Bible says were righteous, had prayed. He was a priest. They had prayed and prayed to have a child and found that they were not capable of that. And they had continued to pray and to grieve and to hope and to try and to wait. And it never happened. And before you know it, they were grandparents' age. And he went to the temple to do some of his work. And um, an angel appeared to him in the uh, temple as he was offering for the gift for the people and said, your prayer has been heard. You're going to have a son. 
Zechariah said, I don't believe it. And the angel said, well, I brought that message right to you from God, so don't talk about it until it happens. And he wasn't able to speak another word until after the baby was born. And when his lips were loosed, here's what Zechariah said. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He's saying the coming Savior is the light. He's the sunrise. After Jesus was born, they took him to the temple area. There was an aged man there named Simeon. And uh, he was praying for the redemption of Israel. And it had been revealed to him that he would not die until he saw the Messiah himself. And when they came and they placed baby Jesus in his arms. Then Simeon takes the baby and declares, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Israel had gotten away from the idea, but God had explained it right starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. That you're going to be blessed to be a blessing to others. You're not just blessed because you're wonderful or somehow you deserve it. You are blessed to be a blessing to others. That you're not a reservoir. You're a river, let it flow. And they hadn't. And Simeon comes back or uh, comes back to that that says, You're going to be a you will be the light, so you will be a revelation to the Gentiles who've been living in the darkness. Aha! God cares about us, and you will be for your glory of your people Israel. They will see, yes, this blessing is coming through you. When Jesus started his ministry right at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew makes the connection with the prophecy of Isaiah when he says the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the region and shadow of death on them a light has dawned and Jesus began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then you get to John, who's writing this gospel that we're looking at. And his first verses in chapter 1 say, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything was made. That which was made in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Or translated another way, the darkness doesn't understand it. Darkness didn't get it. That Jesus in human flesh was God. He was the light of the world. Later in explaining this, uh, John explains about Jesus. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. But people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So when we come to the light, we too are exposed and then forgiven and purified by Christ. Let's look at the claim of Christ to be the light. Not only did he have the credentials to be the light because he was God in human flesh, but he claimed to be the light. He didn't claim to be a light. He didn't claim to be another light. He didn't say he's holding the light or that he has the light or even that he's the way to the light. He is saying, I am The light of the world, the one and only. 
So here he is stating this at the Feast of Tabernacles right in front of the menorah there in the temple area, which basically the menorah or the candelabra reminded people of the Shekinah glory of God because it draws their attention back to the time when the people came out of slavery in Egypt into freedom, but they were in the wilderness and God led them. Do you remember that when they left Egypt, Pharaoh had said, go, go, just go. And then afterwards said, wait a minute, that was my free slave labor and no way can i possibly replace them and so he sent his army after them and suddenly there was a pillar of fire standing between the people of israel and the egyptian army it was god and then during the daytime there would be a pillar of cloud it was God. It was God's Shekinah glory. And Jesus is drawing their attention back to the cloud and the pillar of fire in the wilderness. And he's saying, I'm the one who was with you then. I was the one who protected you from Pharaoh. I was the one who guided you through the wilderness. I was the one who was there enveloping the tabernacle. I am God's glory. I am the glory of God. Now that is a bold claim. I want us to consider just a few minutes that cloud and the pillar of fire and the importance to the children of Israel. It says in Exodus 13, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God spoke to them from the cloud. God disciplined from the cloud. God protected them from the cloud. He, he guided them from the cloud or from the pillar of fire. At no time during their wandering could they look up and not see the pillar either of the cloud or of the fire in the sky. They were constantly aware of the presence of God. God is with you. God's watching you. God's leading you. God's guiding you. And yes, he's taking you through some tough times. And some of those people learned the hard way. God was working his plan in their life and it was a challenge. It was difficult. And instead of saying, let's follow God, let's be in the center of God's will. That's where the love and joy and peace abide is when you're right in the middle of where God wants you. Even when it's tough. Instead, they whined and groaned and moaned and complained and dragged their feet and uh, uh, basically made life difficult for the leadership, for Moses. And instead of leaning into what God had for them, they had, uh, God had to drag them into it, kicking and screaming. When I was in high school, I had to take geometry. You know, it was a prerequisite to graduate from high school, to go on to, to live a successful life. You, you wanted to graduate, so you had to take geometry. And I had a teacher named Mr. Hill. And I didn't really work all the angles, and I wasn't that great of a student. And my attitude certainly wasn't right. And I can remember one day in class, maybe more than one, but one particularly stood out because I even looked at Mr. Hill, and I said, you know, this class is a drag. I'm not quite sure what I was expecting. Maybe I thought I would have a little sympathy for the difficulty of the subject. Has anybody else here ever think geometry was a drag? Okay, well, don't tell Mr. Hill because I said that to Mr. Hill. This class is a drag. And he said, you know what? He said, if you wanted, you could pick up your books and go down and see the principal. Tell the principal that and then drop this class. I said, what? He said, well, you haven't added anything positive since the start of the semester to the class. The class would be better off without you and... Uh, it's okay with me if you don't take geometry. It was a wake-up call for me. To think that he wouldn't be thinking like I was. He was thinking, 
I'm dragging you through this. I'm trying to guide you through geometry. And you're, you have to be dragged through this. You know, their story really is our story as well. God's presence is with us. His light is for us. God provides us his protection. He provides his leadership. And, you know, those people, he, when they needed water, God provided water. When they needed food, God provided food. When they complained, he upgraded it to include meat. And uh, they're on this journey somewhere that God has chosen for them. And all they have to do is follow God and say, thank you. That's what we need to do. Follow the light. Follow God. Share the joy. I mean, Jesus, as the light of the world, assured them and us that his presence with us, he's with us and he's God. And he's the constant companion throughout our lives. He promised the disciples, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And he's true to his word. So no matter how alone you have felt at any point in your life or even today, no matter how many people have let you down or abandoned you, Jesus is with you. He's alive in your heart if you've invited him in. He's never so near as when we need him the most. He's only a prayer away. And as the light of the world, Jesus assures us of God's presence. It also symbolizes God's guidance. The second part of this verse, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what I pray for us as a church. God, if you're not going, we don't want to go. We want to go where you are and where you want us to be going as a church. And if we think again of the experience of Israel in the wilderness, we have to remember they constantly had this cloud to catch their attention. The pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire representing God's guidance. They hadn't been out in the desert. They'd been slaving in Egypt. They didn't recognize any of the landmarks. They didn't have any clear which way to go. They, the desert could be confusing. It gets so hot, you can see a mirage. You think there's water where there's no water. It distorts distances. It makes the terrain indistinguishable. And uh, God's providing this guidance in the pillar. And if you look in Numbers chapter 9, verse 17, for about six verses, take a long way to say, here's the relationship of the children of Israel to the pillar. It's easy, simple. When the pillar moved, they moved. When the pillar stayed still, they waited. Just follow God. Because Jesus is the guide. The pillar was there to guide them. So not only can he show us the way out of darkness, but we can seek his counsel when we have major decisions to make. We pray, God, where are you? Where are you going? That's where we want to be. That's where we want to go. He has our best interest in heart. And there's no better place to live than in the center of God's will, even when it's tough. As a church, that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, we've worked for over a dozen years to hear the city say yes, and finally they did. And it was contested, so they said yes again with a 5-0 vote. It's opened a way before us. We didn't do that whole study to just wonder, hmm, would the city say yes? We believe God's guiding us somewhere. So... Clark wasn't, Bonner wasn't the only one to say, do this faster. I, I want to see this in my lifetime. I'll have to watch from heaven. But for us, I don't want it to take the 10 years. The city said, okay, you can take 10 years to do that. Because it's possible to do it in two. And so we talked to a guy who I thought would be help us with the campaign portion, with the finance portion. And his name is Robert Hopper. He's going to be here next Sunday. So you can meet him if you want to. And he said, this isn't just a financial thing. This is a spiritual journey. 
For each person to say, God, if you're alive in me, and then I belong to you, you own me and all my stuff. What do you want me to give to you? What do you want me to do for you? Am I pleasing in your sight, dear Lord? What would you like from me? And he invited us to say, begin a spiritual quest, a spiritual journey. And so we had him here for a day and he's got talking to us. I'll tell you one, one blessing from the day. He mentioned somebody in a different church. He's helped over a hundred and hundred churches uh, get ready to do what they think is the next step. And he said, there was in one church, there was a man and the man came and said at the end of the presentation, you know, I love the Lord so much. I just love this church. I'm going to keep working and I'll just give you my entire retirement account. I wasn't sure I'd heard this right. I said, I'm going to just give my entire retirement account to the work of the Lord because it will help people hear about Jesus around the world. I'll just keep working. And he did into his 80s. Well, we came out of that meeting here at our church with 30 of our leaders. And one of them came to me and said, you know that story about the retirement account? I said, uh-huh. I said, I was impressed. The person said, I was too. In fact, I'm going to do that. I said, what? They said, I have two retirement accounts. Got one started here and then one started there. I'm going to just take this one retirement account and just give it to the work of the Lord here at South Shores. I said, God's moving in this. That's a very generous gift. This is how you're going to be able to survive. Yeah, God will take care of me. I will be fine. I go, so I got thinking myself, just to tell you, uh, you know, I got thinking and praying and say, okay, Lord, here's the number that I think that you would want from, from, from the Thai guy family. And honestly... It was five times larger than any gift we've ever given. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm really being generous. And I went home, told Cindy. And when I told her, I said, I'm thinking about doing it. She didn't even pray about it. She didn't even think about it. And she just said, that's way too small. I said, whoa, okay. We're in this to sacrifice to follow the Lord because the Lord is leading us at church. How do we follow him? How do we hear him someday say, well done? The light symbolized God's protection And Jesus, the light of the world, is our protection. Do you know, you look at the characteristics of Jesus as the light. The light, light reveals. When you turn on the light, you can see things you couldn't see before. And maybe they don't look better, but they're sharper and they're in focus. And you can do something about it. Light reveals, darkness conceals. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun. Because not only because I can see it, but because by it, all things are seen. When Jesus comes alive in your heart, he's the light of the world. He's the light in your heart. He starts to bring things to your, to, to, for you to notice of how, wow, there's a corner that's dark in my heart. I need to do something about that. John 3.21 says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works are carried out in God. Ephesians 5:13 says when anyone is exposed by the light it becomes visible light exposes but it also can blind you the only way to receive the light uh, benefits of the light is to have the light guided where you're looking and to follow the light the Bible says in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, there's only two groups of people who are unaware of the presence of light. One is people who are blind and totally unable to see. 
The other group is even sadder as those who close their eyes tightly and refuse to see. Say, I'm not going to see it. Well, I haven't gotten very far through the chapter 8 of John. So let me give you a quick rundown of the rest of the verses that we're looking at today. Verses 12 through 30. Because so far we've just been on verse 12 where Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. But the people challenge his statement. And Jesus defends his credibility of his testimony. And none of those who hear him argue the, uh, the validity of his claims. They just quibble over technicalities. And in verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I want to go back to that little phrase, I am he. Because in Greek, it's two words, ego imi, which ego means I, and imi means I am. So it would really be, unless you believe that I, I am, you will die in your sins. I am is the same name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, who am I going to say sent me? I am. It's the verb to be. I was. I am. I will be. Um, in other words, I'm a constant. I'm the constant. I am. And Jesus has numerous I am statements that we'll be looking at. But here in verse 24 and in verse 28, he says the same thing. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am He. I am. I, I am. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And his crucifixion and resurrection become the one great final sign proving Jesus to be the Messiah. He was lifted up. He draws all men and women, boys and girls, to himself. He will be recognized as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the light of the world. Now, how is God speaking to you today through his word? Have you ever trusted Jesus to be the light of the world in your life? Have you ever experienced the forgiveness that he gives of our sins and the promises of eternal life through him? If not, I urge you, put your faith in him today. He's promised those who come to him in faith, he will never turn away. He says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You know, this is what's interesting about this I am statement. And Jesus makes, I think, eight I am statements. But this one is Jesus also said this about his followers. He not only said, I am the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Our light is derived light. It's an indirect light. It's just like it lights not from ourselves. We simply reflect the light of the son of God, just like the moon reflects the light from the sun. It's a borrowed light. It's reflected. It has, we have no light of our own. We radiate the light that comes from Christ. Paul said that we shine as lights in the world. In the darkness of the world, our light shines. You know, someday we're going to see Jesus face to face. And our troubles will be over. Our testing will be complete. I want us to pass the test. I want us to graduate with honors. We want to hear Jesus say, well done. Welcome home. Come in. That's what he did this week for Clark. That's what he did for Gwen and for others who have loved him. And here's how John, in the last book in the Bible, describes when we are with Jesus in the city of God, a place we've called heaven. John says in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, 
and the Lamb. That's another name for Jesus. And the city has no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in the next chapter, which is the last chapter in the Bible, so we've gone from the beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, it says this in Revelation 22, 4 and 5, they will see his face and his name will be etched on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and he or they, now they're talking about God, will reign forever and ever. Amen. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you are the light of the world, that you are willing to state that even in a hostile environment, that you are willing to tell people to follow you. You invited them to have the light come into their hearts. You're inviting us today. And if you've never done that, just right in your seat today, you could pray, Jesus, come into my life, come into my heart, be that light, be my light. Maybe you've done that and so you would pray, dear God, as a church, help us to get ready to even better shine the light of Christ here and around the world. Help us as we get ready to prepare our campus. What would you have from me? Jesus, you gave your all for me. What would you like from me and my stuff and my time and my abilities? And you would place Jesus fully in charge and you'd begin that spiritual journey to say, I'm going to follow him wherever he leads. He is the light of the world. Light of the world, shine in us and through us, we pray. Amen.